High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. You must remember a kiss is just a kiss, a cry for Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment in our ongoing series, Dead Blondes. Where are you going? Hollywood. Hollywood? Do you come here for excitement? I'm better than a human woman. Would you rather I be a brunette? My dress. Do you like it? I, I don't know. It's such a shock to see you dressed. I'm so alone. I'm so alone. I was in a special collections reading room in Las Vegas almost a year and a half ago when I first became interested in the subject of today's story. I was flipping through a copy of the July 19, 1948 edition of Time magazine, which had been archived by the publicity firm kept on retainer by Howard Hughes, who was on the cover of that edition of the magazine. Before I got to the story inside on Hughes, who had recently purchased control of RKO Studios, my eyes fell on a story in the National Affairs pages. A sad but also incredibly judgmental two-and-a-half column write-up on a girl named Frances Lillian Mary Ridsty, better known as Carol Landis. The article declared that because of this woman's, quote, voracious appetite for happiness, and, quote, because she lived in what may become known as the era of American Brazier worship, Frances Lillian Mary Ridsty became a motion picture star. Time magazine went on to explain that after a brief marriage at the age of 15, Ridsty ended up in San Francisco, where she acquired her screen name, and then she moved on to Hollywood, 
and the less-than-illustrious life of the chorus girl slash extra slash B-movie girl. Life was a round of cheap rooms, skimpy meals, an endless attempt to look glamorous and quote-unquote sexy, reported Time. Her big break came when she was cast as the babe in Hal Roach's One Million B.C., which would be remade in a very different era with Raquel Welch in the Landis role. According to Time, though success changed Landis's material quality of life, she remained but, quote, a lovely torso, not an actress. Three more quick and short-lived marriages followed, and the uncredited Time scribe implied that Landis's failure to gain purchase as an A-list star was tied to her erratic love life. Time was not too discreet to mention that at the end of her life, Landis was in love with big-time serious actor Rex Harrison, who was married to another woman. Two weeks before the publication of the Time article, Landis had dinner with Harrison. Then, alone in her house in Pacific Palisades, she had a couple of drinks, took a lot of pills, scrawled out a note asking her mother to pray for her, and then collapsed on her bathroom floor. Harrison attended Landis's funeral with his wife. It was, per time, a splendid affair. They meant the funeral. I was shocked, reading this, that Time magazine would discuss this married actor's affair with this dead-by-her-own-hand starlet so transparently, without any coding or attempt at discretion. This was extra surprising, because at the point I discovered the article, I had already spent several days in the bubble of Howard Hughes press clippings, which, due to Hughes' financial power and willingness to use that muscle to obsessively protect his image, were extremely consistent in that they included virtually no new information that Hughes didn't want the public to know. I wondered, how did it happen that Rex Harrison had no one protecting his image? And more importantly, how did Carol Landis get to the point where, even in tragic death, she was dismissed by a national magazine as no more than a lovely torso? Join us, won't you, as we try to unpack the story of Carol Landis. This episode is brought to you by MUBI, the curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. Every film on MUBI is hand-selected by real people who really love movies, so you get films from iconic directors, from emerging auteurs. There's always something new to discover. And coming up in May, here's something to discover. Gasoline Rainbow, the latest film from the Ross Brothers. They are the acclaimed directors behind another great film you might have seen called Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. Gasoline Rainbow is about five teens from inland Oregon who pile into a van with a busted taillight to get to a place they've never seen, the Pacific Coast. New York Magazine called it, quote, an ecstatic road trip movie, and that just about sums it up. Gasoline Rainbow opens in U.S. theaters May 10th, and then you can stream it exclusively on Mubi starting May 31st. Best of all, right now you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash YMRT. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash YMRT for a whole month of great cinema for free. Take the ride. Born on January 2, 1919, the future Carol Landis was one of three children who was moved around constantly by their mother, Clara, who acquired and lost husbands frequently. 
By the time she was seven, Frances's hair, blonde at birth, had darkened to a sun-kissed brown. It was that year that she first declared her intention to become a movie star. Among her favorite actresses was Kay Francis, who reigned as a star of pre-code women's films for much of the 1930s. In 1932, when Frances Ridsdy was 13, Kay Francis starred in a triumvirate of movies, One Way Passage, Jewel Robbery, and Ernst Lubitsch's Trouble in Paradise, in which she played independent, unbearably glamorous women whose lives were full of thrills, but also sadness. In Lubitsch's comic masterpiece, for instance, Frances falls in love with a man who has been conning and robbing her, and in the end, she doesn't even get to keep the guy. To be a teenage girl who was into Kay Francis was to look to a world in which failure, unhappiness, and even death were romanticized and glamorized. Kay Francis was the patron saint of living life to the fullest, because you couldn't know how much life you had to live. In other words, even more than a typical teenage girl, Frances Ridsdy wanted all of life to start happening to her now. Now, now, now. In early 1934, just after she turned 15, Landis eloped with a guy four years her senior named Irving Wheeler. The teenager's main impetus to marry seems to have been that she thought married women didn't have to finish high school. Her mother saw this marriage as nothing but a truancy gambit, and soon thereafter Clara filed the paperwork to have the marriage annulled. Then, a few months later, the couple got married again. This time, they lived together for a few weeks, and after a fight, Frances went to spend the night at her mother's. Then Wheeler disappeared. Landis tried for years to find him to secure a divorce, to no avail. As soon as she turned 16, she skipped town and headed for San Francisco. There, Frances Ridsty renamed herself, borrowing Carol from Carol Lombard. She later claimed she chose Landis at random from the San Francisco phone book. The newly dubbed Carol Landis found work as a hula dancer and singer at the Royal Hawaiian Club. And this is about all that's known for sure about the two years Landis spent in San Francisco, although rumors would circulate throughout her time in Hollywood, and for decades after, that Carol supported herself in San Francisco as a call girl, and that she lived in fear that her past would resurface somehow during her present as a star. I haven't been able to trace the genesis of these rumors. They certainly did not come from any hint or admission made by Carol herself before her death, and her surviving family members strenuously denied the stories that circulated after her suicide. It would be a fool's errand to try to prove absolutely whether or not a now-deceased woman was ever compensated for sexual favors 80 years ago, but I suspect that perhaps people in Hollywood believed that Carol Landis had been a hooker because from very early in her time in Hollywood, certain men in power treated her like a hooker. Choreographer-turned-director Busby Berkeley was known for designing the most innovative on-screen dance numbers of the 1930s, if not of all time. He rarely worked with dance superstars such as Fred Astaire, and his style of shooting wouldn't have been conducive to Astaire's stage-trained mastery. Instead, Busby Berkeley choreographed spectacles that took unique advantage of the movie camera, its constrained frame, and the ability cinema gave you to fool the eye and cheat time through the cut. 
so maybe it made sense then, that when he was looking for new young ladies to populate his kaleidoscopic routines, Berkeley usually didn't bother having aspirants learn and perform an actual dance routine. Instead, he'd have the girls line up and lift their skirts one by one to show him their legs. If he liked what he saw, he might ask an aspirant to come to his office and take off her skirt completely. When Carol Landis joined the line in May of 1937, about six months after she migrated to Los Angeles from San Francisco, Buzz was so blown away by the way she filled out her tight sweater that he didn't need her to lift her skirt before he cast her. But Busby Berkeley and Carol Landis did begin an affair. Berkeley was powerful enough that he was able to convince Jack Warner to sign her to a seven-year contract. The contract didn't amount to much. Berkeley included Landis in the chorus of a few films, in parts too small to merit credit. She believed they would someday marry. But Buzz wasn't terribly interested in marriage, and his mother believed rumors she had heard that Carol had been a teenage hooker in San Francisco. If Buzz had had any serious intentions with Carol, Mrs. Berkeley effectively squashed them. Within a year, he had moved on to another teenage chorus girl, and Warner Brothers had dropped Carol Landis' contract. Then, suddenly, Irving Wheeler reappeared and sued Busby Berkeley for stealing his wife. This was the first Carol had heard of her ex-husband in over three years. The movie director had had nothing to do with the alienation of her affections. But the lawsuit was treated credibly by the media, at least until it was thrown out of court in August 1938. A few months later, Carol and her first and second husband finally finalized their divorce. Warner Brothers had cast Carol in tiny parts in 20 films in a little over 12 months, but she spent most of her time posing for what was then called leg art, essentially pin-up photos featuring the 18-year-old in a bathing suit. These images, and the Busby-Berkeley relationship, were enough to make Carol a regular in the press while she was at Warner Brothers. But once she was without a studio and without a powerful boyfriend, the media totally forgot about her, and her opportunities to work in movies dried up along with her publicity prospects. So almost a full year went by between Landis' final film at Warner Brothers and her next movie, which would turn out to be her first leading role opposite John Wayne in the Republic Pictures Western, Three Texas Steers. In Three Texas Steers and the few additional films Carol would make at Republic, she has dark hair, and she's styled to look cute and capable rather than overtly sexualized. Then, she caught the eye of D.W. Griffith, who, by the end of the 1930s, had fallen far from his status, cemented 25 years earlier, as the first great director of future films. Now he was working for producer Hal Roach as the casting director on a science fiction film called One Million B.C. Griffith had dozens of young actresses brought in for the lead, and he'd have all the promising ones go out onto a street set on the studio lot, take off their shoes, and show him how they ran. Carol was the only actress brought in who, in Griffith's mind, ran the right way, like an athlete or a deer. One Million B.C. got Carol a new contract with Roach, but it didn't exactly make Carol a star. Instead, it made her legs, 
eyes, and her hair, newly bleached and permed in an approximation of a cavewoman's afro, into an object of fascination, to be reported on in magazines as if divorced from the woman herself. The part in the movie was sympathetic, but it did little to put forth an idea of what kind of star Carol Landis would or could be, given that this film about warring tribes of prehistoric people was almost entirely spoken in an invented, grunt-heavy cave person dialect. But it did get Carol's name back in the newspapers, although less for her acting activities and more for her rotating cast of boyfriends, which included Pat DeSico, ex-husband of Thelma Todd. One book on Carol claims that DeSico once beat her so badly that he broke her nose, and that this was covered up by claims that Carol had had a nose job. This would not seem out of character for Pat DeSico, who was known to be violent, especially with women. But it also seems clear that Carol did undergo plastic surgery on her profile around this time. The structure of her face changes considerably between Three Texas Steers and her next film after 1 million BC. And while some of that change in appearance may have been due to makeup, it does seem evident that there's a slight bulbousness to her nose before that isn't there after. Her new look, the very perfection of the blonde beauty ideal circa 1940, played an important part in Carol's next film, which might have been her best, and which, as far as I can tell, is the first Hollywood body swap comedy. Turnabout stars Landis and John Hubbard as Sally and Jeff, a bickering married couple who both wish they could swap places with the other. A Hindu artifact that they happen to keep in their bedroom hears this wish and makes it happen. So a man who looks like Jeff goes to work at his advertising agency, but he acts and talks like Sally, with Landis's voice dubbed over Hubbard's performance. Meanwhile, there's a woman at their glamorous Manhattan apartment who looks like Sally, with the voice and personality of Jeff. Turnabout is a wild movie. Though its action borrows a bit from bringing up Baby, it feels more unhinged than that, or most of the classic screwball comedies. And Carol Landis's performance is really something. You see the physical comedy she pulls off in Turnabout, and you wonder why she didn't become a Lucille Ball. And then you remember that in 1940, Lucille Ball was at RKO, struggling to keep a foothold in the same glamour girl lane that Landis would come to feel stuck in. Later, Landis would look back on Turnabout fondly for requiring her to actually do something as an actress, other than look like an object of desire. After the film was in the can, Hal Roach, as if worried that the gender swapping would somehow make viewers forget that Carol was a very desirable girl, made what at first looked like an effort to make sure Landis would forever be objectified by scheduling a press conference to announce that he had branded her as the Ping Girl. That's Ping, P-I-N-G. And you can imagine for yourself where that sound was supposed to come from. In any case, the press conference never happened because the day before it was scheduled, the Hollywood trade papers all ran paid ads in which Carol declared that she didn't plan to show up for the press conference. And in fact, she would thereafter refuse to, quote, ping, purr, or even coo on demand. 
This led to a spread in Life magazine in July 1940, headlined, Carol Landis Does Not Want to Be Ping Girl. The article explained that Landis's distaste stemmed in part from the fact that some directors believed, quote, that her curves interfered with their stories. It's difficult to tell from the available evidence whether Carol Landis was organically bristling at Roach's publicity scheme and openly defying the man who paid her, or if her rebellion was in fact all part of the same scheme. In the end, Carol got more and better quality publicity for seemingly going against the grain than she would have had the gambit ended with the Ping coronation. Shortly after the Life magazine featuring Carol hit the newsstands, she married a yacht salesman named Willis Hunt Jr. The marriage lasted about two months before Carol filed for divorce, citing extreme mental cruelty on the part of her husband, although she continued to date Hunt almost up until their divorce was finalized. Carol was scolded by some of the gossip columnists for treating marriage so cavalierly, which may be why she explained in an article published a few years later that it was Hunt, who didn't like being called Mr. Landis, who couldn't handle being married to her. The bad publicity didn't stop Carol from moving on immediately to Franco Tone, who had just divorced Joan Crawford. According to Carol, she and Franco had a passionate affair, which she hoped would develop into marriage. But he left her for a woman she uncharitably described as a non-professional. Not pretty, really. She had either simultaneous or closely consecutive relationships with Gene Markey, ex-husband of both Hedy Lamarr and Joan Bennett, and MGM art director Cedric Gibbons. In late 1940, Carol filmed her last film at Roach Studios, the sequel Topper Returns, and then she was signed by Fox. Compared to Roach Studios, 20th Century Fox was the big time, and while her contract included allowances for Roach to borrow her services, it was stipulated that Fox would be in charge of shaping Carol Landis as a star, and wouldn't approve her appearances in films that might confuse or diminish the image they planned to create for her. Fox certainly wasn't interested in any image that Carol had presented on screen to that point. Daryl Zanuck, the executive in charge of production at Fox, told Carol that he had been drawn to her by the stories about her love life in the newspapers. Zanuck told her, I figured any girl who is so popular with men, whom so many men want to date, must have something we can use and need in our pictures. The thinking was that they would use and need her as a compliment to their A number one blonde, Betty Grable. Landis would be cast as the second lead in movies in which Grable was the star, such as Moon Over Miami, in which Carol played Betty's younger sister. Carol would only get to star in movies that were deemed too second string for a star of Grable's stature. The idea that Landis was on the bench behind Betty Grable's everyday starter fits in with the way Fox tended to use their stars. One contemporary account of this practice described it as teeming blondes. It's possible that Landis could have graduated to the A-team had she not turned down one of her first major opportunities at the studio. The legend holds that about a month after Carol jumped from Roach to Fox, she declined the opportunity to star opposite Tyrone Power in Blood and Sand, 
because the role would have required her to dye her blonde hair black. Columnist Jimmy Starr quoted Carol as explaining, I made my reputation as a blonde. If I change now, people will dub me a copycat. That I don't want. The actress she would have been accused of copying was Hedy Lamarr, who was director Ruben Mamoulian's first choice for the role. In the end, the part went to redhead Rita Hayworth, who was not required to dye her hair. Landis's decision to remain a blonde would end up haunting her, because Fox never offered her a part as good as the female lead in Blood and Sand again. Just over a year later, Carol would end up dyeing her hair brown, and would appear on screen as a brunette for seven films, beginning with the baseball comedy It Happened in Flatbush. Carol's struggle to find purchase at Fox was not thanks to an overall attitude of rebellion. In other words, she didn't always say no. According to Rex Harrison biographer Alexander Walker, Carol was known as a good sport, but she also believed in fair play. As Walker put it, Quote, she expected professional favors in return for her companionship. Daryl Zanuck was notorious for calling contract girls into his office in the afternoons so that he could take advantage of the perks of being the boss without necessarily offering these girls anything in return. Multiple accounts suggest that Carol was a frequent afternoon visitor to Zanuck's office. One producer at the studio, Milton Sperling, would later describe Landis as the studio hooker. This seems unfair for a lot of reasons, one of them being that any decent hooker has more than one client, and though there are other general statements akin to Sperling's, no one names names, meaning there's no evidence Carol sold herself to any specific person other than Zanuck. Also, Carol was clearly not the only woman who was put in this situation by Zanuck, In fact, there was so much quote-unquote hooking going on between Zanuck and Fox contract actresses that it seems like spending time in the boss's office was not a good way to distinguish oneself from all the other girls who were spending time in the boss's office. The on-screen pairing of Grable and Landis ended just after their second film together, I Wake Up Screaming. An odd hybrid of media satire and noir, Screaming stars Landis as a waitress named Vicky Lynn, who Victor Mature bets he can transform into a star. He pulls it off, but just as Vicky Lynn has signed a movie contract and is about to leave New York for Hollywood, she's murdered. Mature teams up with her sister, played by Grable, to absolve himself of the crime. The plot of the movie is who killed Vicky Lynn, but the real subject is the unbearable levels of obsession Vicky inspires in every man who meets her. At one point, a room of men are watching the screen test that got her the Hollywood job, and each of the men, seen in close-up, seem to be visibly pained taking in the dead woman's beauty. In the end, it's revealed that one of Vicky's admirers killed her, and another covered it up. I Wake Up Screaming ends up eerily foretelling Carol Landis's fate in Hollywood, a woman that beautiful inevitably becomes a target for the worst in men. The movie tells us it's better, and safer, to be run-of-the-mill beautiful like Betty Grable. Still fuckable, but not so otherworldly that you literally drive men mad. In the movie, and in Hollywood, 
Carol Landis was exceptional, but Betty Grable survived, at least until her own death from cancer in 1973. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious, but with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. Shortly after I Wake Up Screaming came the bombing of Pearl Harbor. When her hair was darkened in the spring of 1942, Fox's publicity suggested this was Carol's way of rationing, who had the time and money for the extravagance of hair bleach in a time of war. But it may have also been Fox's way of trying to tone down Landis's extravagant beauty so that she could be cast in ensemble movies like Orchestra Wives without proving to be so much of a distraction. Whether the hair color call was made by Landis or by the studio, the intention may have been good, but the impact on Carol's stardom was significant. Being a brunette diminished her star power. It was almost as though she was being punished for being too luminous, just like her character in I Wake Up Screaming. And yet, Carol felt increasingly disconnected from the blonde beauty she had been in movies, so she may not have minded. She was trying to transform herself into a different person one whose life had been given new purpose by the war. She threw herself into the war effort, visiting bases across the country and touring cities selling war bonds. She was old hat on the USO circuit by June 1st, when she complied with an unusual request on the radio program Command Performance. Tonight, we believe we have the most unusual request made to date. Here is the letter. Special Service Division, War Department, Los Angeles. Dear Command Performance, We feel we could win the war single-handed if we could only hear Carol Landis sigh. That's all we want, just to sigh. Sign Jimmy Doc and Big Mac somewhere in the South Pacific. Okay, fellas, don't forget your promise. Carol Landis will now sigh. (sighs) (laughs) The sigh that was heard round the world. Thank you, Miss Carol Landis. A month later, Landis found out the War Department was looking for Hollywood volunteers to go overseas and entertain the men stationed there. 
it was truly volunteer work. There was no pay, and volunteers would have to forego their studio salaries while away. And Landis still stood first in line for the assignment. A squad was assembled, consisting of Landis, Martha Ray, and Mitzi Mayfair, then both small stars compared to Landis, and 1930s woman's picture queen Kay Francis, one of Carol's childhood idols. The women, who constituted the only all-female troupe of entertainers to go overseas during World War II, were initially told they were going to be sent to England for six weeks. As it turned out, they went to England, North Africa, and Bermuda, and they were gone five months. At a typical show, Kay Francis would MC, warming up the crowd by giving body, innuendo-laden speeches, Martha Ray would sing and tell jokes, and Mitzi Mayfair would dance. Landis would mostly sigh and sing, although she got in a few quips of her own. At one show in the pouring rain in Bermuda, Carol gave up on trying to sing and gave the boys what they really wanted, an excuse to think about sex. Gosh, I'm pretty nervous being up here all alone with a thousand men, she said. Well, you can understand how I feel. After all, how would you like to be all alone with a thousand girls? On the trip, Carol came down with appendicitis and contracted an intestinal infection. She and the other girls were often freezing and dirty and very close to the actual fighting. Carol dictated her experiences to a writer named Edwin Seaver, and they were published in a volume credited to Carol, published upon her return, called Four Jills and a Jeep. The title for the book came from the Hollywood movie, in which the quartet played themselves, the script for which was begun by a crew of Fox screenwriters while the tour was still underway. Carol would be cited with writing the story for the movie, despite the fact that it's not really an adaptation of her book. But in the movie, as in real life, Carol would come home to the U.S. having fallen in love with and married one of the boys she had come to entertain. Carol had fallen in love with Air Force Captain Tommy Wallace at first sight about a week into her travels. They'd marry before she left the U.K. for North Africa. By the time Carol returned to the U.S. in March 1943, the story of how she met her third husband, who remained overseas, had been widely disseminated, turning Carol into the heroine of a real-life wartime love story. It was great propaganda, for the war effort and for Carol's career as a celebrity. But Fox failed to capitalize on the fact that Carol had launched herself into a new echelon of fame in her absence from the studio. The first role they gave her on her return was a supporting part in Wintertime, a musical built around the talents of figure skater Sonia Henney. Carol went back to being a blonde for the Four Jills in a Jeep movie, but it didn't do her much good. The film was savaged by critics who perceived it as a vanity project, allowing the four actresses to pat themselves on the back for their good deeds. Carol spent the late summer of 1944 on another USO tour, this one to the South Pacific, where she contracted dysentery, which would plague her for years. By the end of this trip, Carol had called it quits with her third husband, who she had seen only a handful of times since the wedding. Carol summed up the problems with her third marriage in a January 1945 photoplay article titled, Don't Marry a Stranger. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, 
You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. By late 1944, Carol was in New York preparing to star in a Broadway review called A Lady Says Yes. One of the main supporting parts in the show was played by Jackie Suzanne, later known as Jacqueline Suzanne the author of Valley of the Dolls. And, according to Suzanne's biographer, Jackie and Carol had a steamy affair while working together. Carol played the part of the traditional wooer, sending flowers and jewelry. Jackie was significantly smitten by Carol that she based the character of Jennifer in the Valley of the Dolls on Landis. It didn't make it into the movie, but in Susan's original novel, Blonde Jennifer has a deeply satisfying romance with a brunette. In real life, the relationship ended when the play did, in March 1945, but Carol and Jackie kept in touch. On VJ Day, Carol called Jackie in a funk. With the war over, she felt at loose ends. Entertaining the troops had given her a respectable purpose. Now she supposed she'd have to go back to being a sex pot, but for how much longer would she be able to pull that off? She told Jackie she envied her intelligence. If acting didn't work out for her, she could always be a writer. This is all per Jacqueline Suzanne's biographer, Barbara Seaman. The fact that Landis had already published Four Jills in a Jeep, which was well-written but accomplished with the aid of a ghostwriter, may have made her feel more like a charlatan. Maybe she figured that without the war to give her empirical experience, no one would care what some sexy blonde had to say. After a Nevada residency to divorce Wallace, Carol was directed by Douglas Sirk in his third American film, A Scandal in Paris. Then came another blink-and-you-missed-it marriage, this one to a millionaire named Horace Schmidlap, who wanted Carol to give up her career and live with him in New York. After a honeymoon in Cuba, Carol reported to Fox in Los Angeles as scheduled to appear in the aptly named It Shouldn't Happen to a Dog. And then she spent about six months traveling, occasionally actually spending time on the East Coast with her fourth husband. Though she was technically still under contract to Fox, they didn't offer her any parts, and she apparently didn't seek them. Fox severed ties with Carol in October 1946. A month later... Carol was back in Hollywood trying to find work with other studios. And that is when Carol began seeing Rex Harrison. Harrison had arrived in Hollywood while Landis was busy with her Broadway play and the early days of her relationship to Schmidlap. Around town, the British Rex was perceived as being more or less synonymous with his character in The Rake's Progress, in which he had starred opposite his wife, Lily Palmer. Rex and the Rake were both totally selfish and completely charming chasers of immediate pleasure with little regard for long-term consequences. In that movie, Harrison's character would drive Palmer's character to attempt suicide. 
The Harrison-Landis affair became public knowledge to some in Hollywood after a party in July 1947 at John Houston's house, where Harrison was observed drunkenly dancing with Landis while his wife Lily looked on impatiently. According to Evelyn Keyes, then married to Houston, the wife ended up confronting the girlfriend, and Landis responded by reaching in and pulling out Palmer's falsies. After that, though Harrison made no move to divorce Palmer, he and Landis apparently decided together to go work in England. Harrison would star in Escape, the first Hollywood film to be shot in post-war London, while Carol, whose star had risen overseas thanks to the Four Jills and a Jeep saga, booked her own film assignments. In England, she was appreciated for her USO work, and not just ridden off as the would-be ping girl. She and her fourth husband were technically still together, but based on how far in love she had already fallen with Harrison, it seems like for Carol, her current marriage was just a technicality. But Rex Harrison's marriage was not a technicality. Lily Palmer remained with him in England, even as the affair with Carol carried on. When they all had returned to the States in March 1948, Carol publicly announced that she and Horace had separated. Then, on March 16th, Walter Winchell's column claimed that Rex Harrison would be Carol Landis's next husband, and that Lily Palmer was well aware of her husband's affair. The latter statement was true. The former would not come to pass. It was said that, by this point, Landis wore all four of her wedding bands stacked on one finger— as a reminder, as she put it, not to get married again. But she would have married Rex Harrison in a heartbeat if he would have had her. Winchell's column, rather than announcing the inevitable, threw the Harrison household into damage control mode. Harrison's biographer Alexander Walker describes a conference Rex was called into by his employer, Daryl Zanuck, who, of course, was the former employer and sexual partner of Carol. Zanuck told Rex that the relationship described by Winchell could be cause for termination of Rex's contract, per the morals clause that all actors had to sign adherence to. Zanuck then supposedly revealed Carol's reputation as the harlot of the fox lot. The studio chief essentially told the actor that he shouldn't even think about leaving his wife for his lover. The studio chief, of course, had a personal investment in Rex Harrison's career, and zero investment left in Carol's. As far as Fox and Zanuck were concerned, Carol Landis had been used up, and she was now disposable. Rex did not break things off with Carol. And Carol continued to believe that it was just a matter of time before her lover became her husband. She believed that he was her ticket to a new career as a serious actress, which was just one way in which Carol was living in a fantasy world. Having been distraught about her advancing age and her worry that the clock was ticking on her beauty, and thus her career, she had thrown all her hopes onto becoming the next Mrs. Rex Harrison— and yet she was actively making plans to work. She had booked a starring role in the theatrical production of the 1944 film Laura, and she was planning to return to England to make another movie there. That spring, 
Rex was occupied starring in Unfaithfully Yours, directed by Preston Sturges. Rex played a conductor who fantasizes of killing his wife in retaliation for her infidelities, which are also imagined by him. When the movie wrapped at the end of April, Rex had his days free, and he spent most of them with Carol, at the beach or at her house. During this time, Lily had gone to New York to stay with her sister, perhaps hoping that her husband's affair would fizzle out in her absence. It had shown no signs of doing so by early July, when Rex was offered the lead in a Broadway production of Anne of a Thousand Days. On July 4th, Rex came over to Carol's house for dinner. They discussed the play, and Carol agreed it was an excellent opportunity for him. Rex then left around 9 p.m. to see a male friend. He called Carol at 1.30 a.m. to say goodnight. He noticed she sounded a little strange, but he spoke to her reassuringly, telling her that even though he was going to New York to do the play, he wasn't abandoning her, and in fact, he'd help her find movie work in England. Carol was not reassured. Rex taking a part on Broadway meant not only that they would be separated, but that Rex would be leaving Hollywood, where Carol was, to go to the place where his wife was. To Carol, it meant that he was letting her down easy, choosing work that would take him away from her as an easy way of choosing between the two women. After the phone call, Carol took an overdose of sleeping pills. Her time of death was estimated by the coroner as 3 a.m. At 11 a.m., Rex called Carol's house, and the maid told him she was still sleeping. Later that afternoon, Rex came over to the house. He went into Carol's bedroom and found her body. There were four empty pill bottles scattered on the floor next to Carol's corpse. She had a rosary in her hand and a note to her mother, which began, Dearest Mommy, I'm sorry, really sorry to put you through this, but there's no way to avoid it. Lily Palmer flew back to Los Angeles the next day. In her autobiography, she would write that two nights after Carol's death, she and Rex received a phone call from one of Carol's best friends, who had said that Carol had attempted to overdose before. But every time, after taking the pills, she would call the friend and the friend would send a doctor over to have Carol's stomach pumped. On July 4th, the friend had been out in Manhattan for the night. When she returned... There was a message that she had missed a long-distance call from Los Angeles, but she figured it was too late to call back. Because he had found the body, there was no way for Rex Harrison to avoid a connection to Carol Landis's death. He was the key witness at the coroner's inquest, which was breathlessly reported in the press, but which was sort of unnecessary. It was all too clear that Carol Landis's death was a suicide, she was the one who put the pills in her mouth and swallowed them. It doesn't matter who wasn't around to take her phone call. It doesn't matter who said what to her earlier that night that may or may not have made her want to do it. Rex and Lily presented a united front at the funeral, which began with a priest reading a speech from Shakespeare's As You Like It, the one that begins, All the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players but life is merely a dress rehearsal for what is to come afterward. 
Together, Rex and Lily left Hollywood. Fox dropped Harrison from his contract after Unfaithfully Yours, the nutty comedy of sexual paranoia, which Rex had filmed at the height of the Landis affair, opened that fall and did abysmal business. The rake landed on his feet, though. After divorcing Lily in 1957, Harrison had the biggest success of his career in 1964, with My Fair Lady, for which he won an Oscar. Walter Winchell bookended his coverage of the Harrison-Landis affair with what seemed like a sincerely felt pian to Carol, in which he noted, quote, The Landis tragedy proves that the greatest dramas in Hollywood are not filmed, they're lived. Carol's real-life Hollywood tragedy was borrowed by her friend and sometime lover Jacqueline Suzanne, who based the character of Jennifer in Valley of the Dolls on Carol. Jennifer would be played in the 1967 movie by Sharon Tate, the next generation's most tragic blonde, who never lived to see the age of 30. But that is a story we have told before. And you can't get from Carol Landis's suicide to Sharon Tate's murder without passing through the story of Marilyn Monroe, which we'll begin to do next week. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. This episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholz. Our editor is Sam Dingman. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can find us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. We're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes. It really helps people find it. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night.